Welcome back to How They Train. Today I'm joined by professional triathlete Non Stanford. Non was the 2013 ITU World Champion and cemented the year as world champion by winning the ITU Grand Final in London. Non represented Great Britain at the 2016 Rio Olympic Triathlon where she finished fourth, literally three seconds off an Olympic medal. Non, thanks for joining me. How are you? Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Um, yeah, I'm really well, thank you. Hey, uh, what's happening in your training life at the moment? Um, so just sort of trying to get back into a bit of consistency and, and back into a bit of routine. Um, we got back from the couples triathlon over in Florida about 10 days ago. So yeah, get, got over the jet lag, had a bit of an easier week to recover from the travel and um, straight back into it now, to now, now this week. Talk to me about this couples triathlon because this concept is pretty weird to me. How, how did that all come about and, and, and what made you guys want to go and do it? Honestly, the hundred grand prize purse, or not prize purse, hundred grand for <laughs> win. It was more than a hundred grand prize purse, but um, yeah, obviously that was the that was the main attraction of the event, and um, we heard about it through other athletes posting that they'd been invited. So we kind of said, yeah, we want a, a slice of that cake, and um, got in touch with the organisers, and were lucky enough to um, be invited along as well. And it was a fantastic uh, race. It was very different to ITU, you know, it was, it was pretty relaxed, pretty chill, but at the end of the day with a lot more on the line than most of the races that we, we actually do. So it was a bit of a, a different experience. And, and for me and Aaron, we never, ever get to race on the same team because obviously the whole Great Britain, Australia thing. So that was nice to, to line up as a team and, and to actually compete together and win together for a change. Yeah. So for people listening who don't know, Non is, you're engaged to Aaron Royal, who he, he was a guest on this podcast, I think episode six, if you want to go back and listen and haven't. Um, what do you think, what do you think made that triathlon happen? Like out of nowhere, this random couples triathlon comes about where the winner gets a hundred thousand dollars. Like you don't even get that for a world championship win, do you? Uh, no, you don't. <laughs> well, you know, I guess it all adds up, but you've got to do a lot of races to to get that world title. So ultimately, yes, you probably win that much money, but over the course of a year rather than uh, one day. So it was set up by a guy called Ben Aitken. He is the owner of Waterfall Investments, a Waterfall Bank. And he loves triathlon and um, he wants to support professional triathletes. Uh, I think he was quite shocked at sort of how little money athletes actually make. And he set up a racing team and, yeah, I think put on this race because he was genuinely interested to see who the fastest couple in the world of triathlon um, is or was. And, um, yeah, I think it's been a, a great idea. Um, yeah, it's a bit different. It's a bit niche. Um but it was great fun and I think um, great thing to watch and, you know, hopefully it takes off and, you know, hopefully he continues to put on the event for, for a few years to come because it does give, you know, athletes an opportunity to go out there and actually win some decent cash. And for people who aren't aware, can you take us through what the format was like for that race? Yeah, so we each had to do a leg each. Um, so each uh, partner swam it was about 800 meters, um, cycled 16K, but um, it was non-drafting, which is obviously different to the ITU or World Triathlon style racing. And then roughly five to 6K run, depending on what leg you did. So you could also choose which order you went in. There was no set sort of gender 
um, rules over who went first or second. So we opted to put Aaron first um, for a few reasons. And I went second. So the majority of the men did go first, bar a few exceptions. And um, most of the women uh, took the second leg. And after that, do you guys think you are the, the best couple in triathlon? Or do you think there's a couple that didn't go that could, uh, could maybe beat you? Yeah, well, um, we have the title. <laughs> but, um, you know, there was definitely a few notable um, absentees. Um, Vincent, Louis and Taylor Spivey were supposed to be on the start list. But um, I think Taylor's sort of been um, slowly coming back from an injury. So, unfortunately... They weren't there. Um, and, you know, they've got some, a lot of great, great couples, triathlon. Um, I'm sure like any sport or any industry is fairly incestuous. You have a lot of um, world-class <laughs> couples together. Um, you know, the likes of Alex Yee and his partner, um, Liv Mathias, who's an up-and-coming British star of the future. They would have been a pretty pretty strong couple. Um, I'm sure the list the list can go on. But, um, yeah, it's about who's there on the day, I guess. And, uh we're lucky enough to have the, sh- the trophy in the front room now. <laughs> and something I'm really curious about, maybe more so than the race, is after the race, what's it like when when you and Aaron are walking around with this like novelty check that says $100,000 on it and you go back to the hotel at night? Like, What was that experience like? Yeah, it was pretty surreal, actually. Um, we did walk back after the race back into the hotel with this massive check and a few heads did turn like, what on earth we just thought when we saw them leave this morning we thought they were going out for a bike ride and now they've come back with a hundred grand um (laughs) so we definitely actually kept that I managed to like squeeze it into my bike bag to come home because we thought you know that's uh, a pretty cool memory that um we'd like to keep so I'm sure it'll end up I mean probably won't put up in the wall in the house but it'll end up in the wall in the garage or something Now, I want to talk about sort of this year for you and and your future, but let's go back first because like, I just think you have one of the most impressive periods of triathlon history. Like your 2012, 2013 sort of era right up till 2016 was just, you were, in my opinion, you were the best female triathlon, like triathlete in the world at that time. Maybe the most complete one. I know Gwen Jorgensen was there, but it was you and her and, and in my mind, not really a close second. So you in 2012 were, were still racing under 23s where you won the you won the grand final that year and then the very next year stepped up to senior or like elite triathlon and and had a breakout year you know you won the world championship that year what was life looking for you looking like for you back then um i guess you know i'd only started triathlon 2009 2010 so i was still pretty new Everything was a learning curve. Um, I was quite lucky at the time that the British squad wasn't quite as strong as it is now. And I got World Series starts It's probably too soon, to be honest with you. I was way out of my depth. I was really thrown in and um, had to learn very quickly. I think I was pretty much lapped out of my first few World Series races back in 2010. But I also think that forced me to improve really quickly. It showed me what the level was and... Fortunately, I rose to it and um, really stepped up and, yeah, started to break through a little bit in 2012. Um, I think I was 10th or 11th at Sydney World Series and then maybe 5th at Stockholm later the, in the year. And uh, and like you said, rounded out the season with um, a win at the Under-23 World Champs. And when I look back now, it, it's crazy. You take it for granted, you know, when you're, when you're doing well and, and things are going to plan it's kind of easy and that's the easy I'd say those are the easiest parts of my career 
um, when, yeah, you're constantly making progression and things are exciting and um, always fresh and new. And yeah, I look back really fondly. Um, maybe winning the world title so early on in my career wasn't the best thing for my long term career, but I would never change it because, um, you know, I can always retire whenever that is with a world title to my name. What was that day like in 2013 when you won that world title? Because um, that was a, like a crazy race, but I don't know, a lot of people listening probably don't remember or or didn't watch that because it was uh, a while ago now, but you you just dominated that world, um, that oh, the grand final in, in London that year where you just completely ran away from the field. Like I think there was 30 seconds between you and second from memory and then the next like eight people were, 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 within, were like within 30 seconds of each other. So you were just miles ahead of everyone on that day. Um, what, what was your training looking like to get you to that point back then? I think back then I was, um, like I said, in a really sort of sweet spot. Everything was going well. My training was super consistent. Although I do I say that I broke my arm at Hamburg. Um, I think that would have been in July. So I broke my elbow. So I actually couldn't swim for six weeks, uh, which took me up to the next uh, World Series race in Stockholm, where I just about managed to get around the swim. So I'd had a bit of disrupted build up to the to the grand final, which was in September back then. Um, but other than that, I was running super well. Um, I'd say I was probably in right, that sort of 2013, start of 2014 year in the best run shape um, of my life. Um, and at the time, that's what you needed to be able to do. You needed to be able to, to run fast. Yes, the, the swim and bike were, were good, but since 2016, the swim and bike have really come on a lot. So back then it was about being able to run sub 33 for a 10K off the bike if you really wanted to win the um, top races. Um, so yeah, I was able to, to get to that race um, in really good shape. And I think it was, it came down to on that day, whoever won, whoever crossed the line first out of me, Gwen and Annie Haug of Germany would be crowned um, the world champion. And I, by chance, was, I think, out of those three in third, but the points between us were negligible. Uh, and I guess I just um, saw it as an opportunity and uh, really just sort of went into that race thinking, wow, you have an opportunity to be world champion. And because I was so new to the sport, it was all just a bit crazy. And I think I just really took it in my stride. I didn't let the pressure get to me. And I think just was the one that kept their head on the day. Back in that period, because you, were you living in Leeds in, in Great Britain at the time? Yeah. So I moved to Leeds in 2011. Um, I graduated from the University of Birmingham in 2010 I worked for a year in Birmingham and I'd only just obviously started getting into triathlon then but I came to a bit of a crossroads where it was my then coach had moved to Malaysia to be with his wife um so I was at a bit of a crossroads I had to decide do I pursue triathlon or do I sort of just get a real job get on with it uh, and kind of move on so I thought well I can always just give triathlon a, a go for a year and uh, see how it goes if it doesn't go to plan you know I can go back to work that's totally fine so um, at the time Leeds was starting to emerge as um, you know a triathlon centre you had the Brownleys up here who were definitely in the golden uh, part of their careers they were winning absolutely everything so yeah I packed up my life and, and moved to Leeds in 2011 and honestly those first two years were such an eye-opener I was not a uh, you know, I was definitely not 
aware of how hard um you know people train as professional athletes um it was bike rides where I was being pushed up hills because I was just absolutely exhausted couldn't get food from plate to mouth because um I was just delirious so it was a very steep learning curve yet again and um, probably now looking back it wouldn't be the way I'd advise a developing athlete to, to learn but I managed to come out the other end of it and that was just around you know towards the back end of 2012 when I managed to win the under 23 title um you know I started to adapt and be able to manage the load and um yeah it really set me up then for that 2013 what was the biggest difference? Was it just the the volume you were doing or was it was it something else that that was sort of so shocking to you about about what the guys were doing in Leeds? It was definitely the volume. Um, before I went to Leeds, uh, it'd be a rarity that I would ride three hours on the bike, you know, generally be around the two hour mark. Whereas when I came to Leeds, you know, four hour rides were normal. They were twice a week, every week. You'd go out into the Yorkshire Dales, which are notoriously um tough roads hilly roads to ride on um and also you know I'm suddenly riding with the best athletes in the world not um you know with all due respect the, the university students that I had been training with so it was a massive step 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 up and I think also it was a big adjustment lifestyle so I was still almost living a student life down in Birmingham even though I was working I was still heavily involved with the university clubs um and I came up here and it was suddenly a professional athlete's lifestyle and um you know everything everything you do being about your training and your performance so it was a really important step for me but yeah an eye-opener for sure and and if the Brownlee brothers weren't living at Leeds at the time would you have gone or were they the main reason why you went there I think they were the main draw um because because the boys were here there was a group of athletes forming around them to train with them. Um, so obviously success breeds success. I'm a strong believer in that. And because they were doing well off the back of that, there was a group of athletes that were also developing and, and coming through. You had Tom Tom Bishop, David McNamee, um, back then Lois Rosendale, um, so, and, and plenty, plenty more. Um, so yeah, it was just the, I guess the boys were the main attraction, but, um, you know, obviously didn't have any hold sort of any ideas that I would be able to keep up with them or anything, but, you know, I do owe a lot to the boys. They were great when I first came up and definitely showed me the ropes and, and helped me around. And, um, yeah, they, they really shaped my career to be honest with you for the next 10 years. And was the training you were doing then, was it designed by Alistair and Johnny Brownlee and you just followed or were you sort of coming in and out of training with them? Um, yeah, it was pretty much designed by, by Alistair probably more than anybody. Um, we had our coaches here. So we had Malcolm Brown and Jack Maitland who ran the centre back then. Uh, and obviously they had, um, you know, input as well and uh, would set the actual sessions. Um, but... You know, I think Alistair was the driving force behind, you know, especially high volume on the bike. Um, and I would just show up every day and do whatever they were doing. Um, you know, Wednesdays used to be a massive day. We'd swim 5K in the morning. Then I'd go for like a 75 minute uh, run with them. And then we'd be out on the bike for four hours. And then we'd be in the gym in the evening. And it was just big, big days for someone that hadn't done anything remotely like that before. Um, but I think it was definitely Alistair who kind of pioneered a lot of the thinking behind it. But 
masterminded and um, controlled and, I guess, uh, finessed by both Malcolm and Jack. And what was it like for you then? Because like that period of time, particularly like Alistair, that period of time was the most dominant a triathlete has ever been. So what was it like for you as like a a young girl walking into that system? I think um, it was, it was incredible to be part of their journey, you know, to, to watch them train and be a part of that and um, see their build up to London 2012 uh, and all the hype that went with it. You know, it was, it was incredible to, you know, I don't want to say contribute to that at all, but to be there on the sidelines and, and witness what was what was going on. And it was definitely really inspiring. And and it meant that you fully bought into to what was happening into the training, into the coaching, because they were so successful off the back of it. You know, Johnny didn't miss a podium for for years. Um, I can't remember what his streak on the podium was, but it was something absolutely insane. Um, and Alistair, as everybody knows, is the, the greatest one day athlete ever in triathlon. And I firmly believe he changed the face of triathlon permanently. Um, so, yeah, I just feel very fortunate to, to have been a part of that. And I think it also kept everybody very grounded and very humble because they would win a World Series at the weekend and then they'd be back training on a Monday and as if nothing had happened. So whenever you had a good race it was almost like, well, yeah, that's expected. That's business here. That's what we do. We go out, we do well, and then we come back and train hard the next day. So, um, yeah, it was a unique experience to be part of. And, um, yeah, I'm very grateful that I got to experience that sort of golden era. And you talked about that Wednesday that you did, but what else were you guys doing with your training back then? Um, so like I said, a lot of, a lot of bike miles, um, Wednesday and Sunday would be four hour rides. Um, but then we'd be riding every day, um, up to two hours, sometimes three on a Thursday as well. Um, with the exception of Friday. So Friday was always our easy day. We'd have a long swim in the morning gym, and then the rest of the day off. Um, back then as well, we used to do a lot of run miles. Um, so we'd run every day of the week, twice on a Tuesday, twice on a Saturday, again other than Friday which would be a day off the legs and then swim every day Monday to to Friday so yeah it's pretty pretty big volume and to be honest with you I now that I'm older I'm 33 now I couldn't tolerate those loads anymore I think um I have to be a lot more sensible but back then I used to just soak it up and um yeah I had a few a few incidents where I sort of crashed and burned because um I'd overdone it but I learned quickly where my limits were and um, it really toughened you up. You had to be tough to survive um, survive the training up here. And um, I think if anything, it showed that I can, I can suffer a lot because <laughs> there was a lot of suffering. <laughs> Something I've always wondered because I, in Australia, I live in a town called Ballarat, which is I, like we all, me and one of my mates um, who, who used to train with the guys a little bit back in the day, I know he trained with Aaron back in the day, Jamie Huggett. We always sort of describe it of the lead, as like the leads of Australia. It's just like hilly. It's like you wake up, it's dark every morning and it's raining every single morning. It's freezing cold. It's just a pretty miserable place to live, but it does make you tough when you go out and train in it. And I'm assuming like you guys have this group of world-class athletes who are living in you know, a really nice place to train, but the weather's miserable. It's freezing cold. It rains all the time. How was that? Like, how was it getting up every day and training in that sort of environment? Yeah. Do you know what? It's tough. But back then, 
Um, I didn't know any different and everybody's doing it. You just get on with it. Um, I remember like very, very rarely, like maybe once or twice a winter, the weather was legitimately too bad to go out. So um, all the girls would bring their turbos around to, to one of the houses and we'd all turbo together to get through a three, four hour ride on the turbos. But other than that, we were mostly out in it. Um, it's quite sort of a well-known phrase around here is there's no such thing as bad weather. There's just bad kit. Um, so, yeah, because everybody was doing it, you just thought it was normal. But looking back, yeah, we put up with some pretty miserable winters. And it's only since I've actually sort of done a couple of nicer winters. So um, in Australia or... Uh, in the Canary Islands that I've realized there is another way. <laughs> so you come back now and you think, oh gosh, this is this is pretty miserable. But um yeah, you just you just get on with it. It's the norm. And if you don't do it, you know that your uh, competitors are out there doing it somewhere in the world. Because there is this thing in the triathlon world where people try and escape like crappy winters to go and, you know, like you said, like go to the Canary Islands or here in Australia, everyone tries to get to like the the Sunshine Coast or that sort of thing. Do you think that if you were doing the same training in a, a warmer environment, like a nicer place, you guys would have been as good as you were? Or was like how hard it was one of the factors that made you guys so tough? Because I think one of the things that was synonymous with your training group at the time is you all just seemed like hard bastards, like Alistair and Johnny and yourself and a few of the other guys. You were just like, when, when the going got tough, you guys just loved it. Yeah, no, I do think it was a massive part of the success of the center. Like you say, it made you tough. Um, you had to suffer through some pretty, pretty tough conditions and some pretty miserable days. And I think we kind of thrived off that mentality. We thought we were tough. So when we had to be tough, we were. Um, it was just sort of the mentality around the training group and, and how we were perceived. So we, so we lived up to that. And, you know, I get it. I get why people seek warmer climbs and better training conditions. But you've also got to be careful of, if you're always in perfect conditions, then it's very easy to overtrain almost to think that it's, you know, to feel like you're always in, in season, you never kind of get that break. So I think the season, you know, having proper seasons like winter and summer really differentiate. Um, and for us, when the weather started getting better and the days started getting longer, it meant that races were coming and the chain, the training sort of changed. It starts, you know, we started to introduce more quality and more, more actual sessions. Um, and it helped us define our years a lot better. And then like that little period where, like you sort of talked about where Johnny and, and Alistair were, were leading into the 2012 London Olympics, where Alistair put on like, in my opinion, the best performance that triathlon's ever seen. And, and you, you won the under 23, like world, um, grand final that year. What was that period like where you were having so much success? Um, like I said, I think we just took it for granted. I think it was what we all did here. We all went out, we performed, we won races or we podiumed and what, while it was, you know, especially the boys performing so well at the Olympics and Alistair having that outstanding performance was, you know, celebrated. It was definitely celebrated. Um, it was just kind of a given. And I think that was also part of the success. It was just, it's what we did. It was uh, business as usual. And um, looking back, I think that's really good. But I think that's often what you do as an athlete. You reflect as you, as you get older and 
sort of maybe come towards the end of your career that you you really reflect on how amazing that was but at the time you you just put your head and put, uh, put your head down and get on with it and I think there's two sides of the argument with that in that yeah you just get on with it because you don't want to um get too caught up in in celebrations and, and blowing hot air if you're an ass kind of thing but equally I do regret not appreciating things as much as I did and then like there's this next period of your career which to me like it sort of all seems like this one big blur when I look back on like because I was a massive fan of triathlon through this period and like you would have these like you would have these crazy good races where I'm like oh non's back here and then the next minute you were injured and it sort of just it felt from the outside looking in like like that was the story of the next few years for you like I know um so like in triathlon for for people who don't know um prior to an Olympic games, there's like these test events that are, that are held on the the next Olympic course and everyone goes and races them. And they're sort of seen as like this big deal because it's literally the, the same race you're about to compete in for the Olympics. And I remember watching that um, Rio Olympic test event where uh, I'm pretty sure you came second that day, didn't you? And I thought, Oh, non like if if non gets this right, she's gonna win the she's gonna win the gold medal next year. And and then I reckon you got injured afterwards, but then you did come back and have an awesome race at the Olympics where you're, you know, like I said, three seconds off a um off an Olympic medal. How do you how do you look at the next sort of few years after that that crazily successful 2012, 2013 patch? Yeah, um very much a, a roller coaster and it 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 does still kind of annoys me now but um I guess you just have to accept it but I hated for a long time that my narrative was always oh she's come back she's on the comeback she's come back um and yeah I just struggled with injuries the 2014 I missed the whole season I tore my plantar fascia pretty badly um and then just sort of had quite a few injuries off the back of it uh, navicular stress fractures um, mainly because I was offloaded for so long. And then when we tried to reload, the bones had got, had got quite weak. So, um, yeah, I was actually, the day I tore my plantar fascia, I was doing a 10 K and hoping to run as close to 32 flat as possible. Um, I think I'd gone through 5 K in like 1545, 1550 or something. So I was on track for it and then tore my plantar fascia just around 5 K. So, um yeah the next few years were, were pretty tough and when you've had so much success and things have gone so well it's quite hard to sort of um I guess take a step back and and deal with with those things um but I obviously missed 2014 but 2015 I actually had a really good year that's when I finished uh, second at the test event and had quite a few world series podiums finished second at the grand final um, I didn't feature in the overall series, but I think it's because I missed the, first, the the start of the season um, with coming back from an injury. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty tough run. And um, 2016 wasn't too bad. I tore my calf in January, which obviously wasn't ideal, but I should have really won a medal at the, at the games. Um, I just got on the bike and felt terrible. And I think ultimately we just got the build up wrong and, you know, those last few days just overdid it a little bit. Um, I was always pushing to try and get that bit of confidence that I seem to be lacking, which, you know, in hindsight, I didn't need, you know, I, I, I can run fast, but I was always trying to push in sessions to, to find that confidence. 
and and overdid it I think in the end and, and I also put too much pressure on myself because I really really wanted to to win a medal um and I didn't want it just for me I wanted it for everyone that had you know participated in my journey and helped me over the years and the fa- my family who'd been with me since you know day dot so I did put too much pressure on myself and I was incredibly nervous um for about two weeks before the race I barely slept so I got a lot of things wrong going into that race and I have a lot of regrets and it's still really painful I've never ever watched the race back um I don't really like to you know I don't mind talking about it like this but I don't really like to reflect too much on it because I guess I know I did things wrong and um you can't go back and undo that can you that's pretty crazy to think about that like I know that like I agree that at the time I thought you were the only person who could beat Gwen Jorgensen in the world and I was I was pretty confident you were going to podium that day so I can I can understand why it's um a really hard day to reflect on because you probably were better than that. But for pretty much everyone in the world, coming fourth, you know, at the Olympics and being three seconds off a podium is is the highlight of their career, you know, like especially in triathlon where that Olympic podium is so hard to get onto. It's like the day it's like it's it's the only day that that triathlon gets you know that that the whole world watches and and everyone is so fit for it and and it's the only race that short course athletes like if they could win one race that's the that's the one race everyone says they would win so like that's a massive result still but it is interesting and it sort of speaks to them the like the mindset you had at the time that it's still like is so painful even though you came fourth you know on that day yeah no yeah it is it's the the biggest race um in triathlon short course of course um but I think even a lot of the sort of short course athletes that have gone long they still consider the Olympics as as the biggest event um you know I know Kona is is pretty up there on the long course uh long course calendar and uh, but that happens every year you know the Olympics only happens every four or in this case five years so it kind of makes it that extra bit special I think and um makes it even tougher to win and you have even less Olympic champions than you do um, Ironman world champions. So um, yeah, it's a really special event. And, um, you know, I really hoped that I'd go to Tokyo and and be able to sort of amend that, but um, it it wasn't to be ultimately. Um, But the sport has changed again so much since 2016. Gwen obviously left and you sort of had the uh, super swimmers and super bikers come in and and really change the dynamic of women's racing. And um, as a runner, I've had to try and adapt to that as best as I can. But um, yeah, those girls are pretty, pretty rapid in the water these days. <laughs> and and something you sort of said there that, that you like you barely slept for two weeks. I am really curious about your preparation leading into, into Rio. You said you probably overdid it a little bit. What did it actually look like? So we went to a holding camp near Sao Paulo. Um, it was actually a military air force base um so it's perfect really um because brazil is an ideal place to train for triathlon uh, british triathlon went to many many venues around the country trying to find the best place for us to have our prep camp and they found this air force base where the um top dog i don't know his actual title um was a keen triathlete and he was super excited to have us there and we could ride around the military base on closed roads and they had a track and a gym and a 50 meter pool and um yeah it just turned out to be a really good place to train so we were really fortunate to be there actually and obviously getting the climate and 
and all the rest of it. Um, and I ended up being the only female from the team who went um, for various reasons, including the Zika virus. The other two decided to stay back in the UK and prep. So I was just there with the boys um, and my poor physio was roped in as my training partner. Um, <laughs> bless him. Uh, so probably not what he signed up for, uh, helping somebody prep for an Olympic Games in that regard anyway. But he did a great job. But yeah, I think, I, because I didn't really have anybody to compare myself to with how I was going, or I guess my usual training partners around me for those last couple of weeks, I think I got quite anxious and, and was pushing all the hard sessions way too much. Um, and yeah, that I can remember the last track session before we went, I think off the top of my head, I think it was three by 500. Um, three times through so we do like three 500s with a hundred jog um between and then 400 between sets uh and off the top of my head they were all sub they're all sub 90 so they'd have been closer to you know 80 seconds for 500 85 seconds I was running really well but I couldn't just relax and sort of um just enjoy running fast and you know I didn't need to run that fast but I was always trying to push and um yeah that was probably the, that would have been the Monday or the Tuesday before our Saturday race um and yeah if I could go back now I would probably not bother doing that session and just do some strides <laughs> do you think like what what amount of that pressure was just you put on yourself because you wanted to perform verse at the time like Gwen being such a dominant force and you knowing how fast you had to win to run to win that race uh, I think it's a combination of both. So the, most of the pressure came from myself and my desire to to perform and do well. Do you know, I would have been happy with a silver medal. Um, Gwen was the outright favourite. You know, she'd dominate for so long. But of course, I wanted to try and beat her and we had plans to try and get rid of her on the bike. And I think we very nearly did. Um, I think she was hanging off the back on the first couple of laps of, of that bike course. But... Um, yeah, I didn't feel good on the day and I didn't execute what the plan was because I didn't, I just didn't have the, the legs to do it. Um, but yeah, there was always in the back of my mind that if I do get off the bike with Gwen, I want to be able to try and run with her. I think in Chicago the year before at the grand final, I stuck with her till we were on the last lap where she sort of dropped a really quick 200, maybe at about 8k um and I just couldn't go with it so I'd been prepping to you know to try and counter that we'd been doing one of the key sessions that we were doing for that was five by a k where you do 400 float we call it but I think you know I think it was still in around 70 72 and then you do 400 as fast as you can um so dropping down to 60 something and then to back to 200 float um and then 400 jog between between each k and yeah all those k's i think we have averaged out around three minutes or just under 258 so it's pretty fast running when i look back now and you know we were trying to do sessions to to counter gwen's kick but ultimately it didn't work <laughs> and you were training with the the brownleys back in that 2012 2013 period at this point in 2016 was your was your training environment still the same because i, I like i know that um like, I'm pretty sure by this stage you would have met Aaron, wouldn't you? Yeah, so um, I met Aaron, or, well, I'd met Aaron years and years before, but um, 
we kind of got together back end of 2015, start of 2016, um, but had made the decision that up to the Olympics, we would stay in our own separate environments. Um, Aaron was with Jamie Turner and the Wollongong Wizards. So, uh, and doing really well there. And I was obviously really settled in Leeds. So we didn't want to disrupt anything in the, in the build up to the games. So that it didn't change in that way. But by 2016, there was a lot more athletes in Leeds. Um, so I had a lot more girls to train with. So I wasn't doing as much with the boys. We were still swimming um, all the swims at the same time. And we turn up to the track or our run sessions. But a lot of the other things became separate because then each of us had big enough groups that we didn't necessarily have to train together. And um, I think by that point in my development, that was quite important because, you know, if you train with men all the time, ultimately you're going to be overdoing it, not just training with men, training with the best men in the world. Um, you know, obviously their, their training is going to be too fast most of the time, even their steady stuff. Um for us so yeah I'd had had a bit more of a group Vicky Holland had moved to Leeds by this point so I was doing a lot while I was living and doing a lot of my training with Vicky Holland Jess Leamont was just developing and coming through um so yeah and I was really lucky to have Callum Johnson who's now a, a pretty established cross-country and marathon runner but was doing triathlon back then um sacrifice his year to to help me out so had a great team around me I have two really big questions off that. The first one being like, obviously Aaron was with the Wollongong Wizards at that time, but he was your your partner. Um, was he giving you inside information about how Gwen was going? No, he wasn't. I think we kind of had like an unspoken agreement that, um, yeah, I just didn't think that was fair, I guess. Um, and is it helpful to know? I didn't think it'd be helpful to know what she's doing or how she's going because that just means you're you're really stressing about that person. Um, and yeah, obviously, you know, we knew Gwen was the main competition, but was I going to change what I was doing because what Gwen was doing in training? Um, ultimately, no. Uh, Jamie's philosophies and approach to training were very, very different to what we were doing in Leeds. You know, I think it was a lot of high quality, low volume work, which is pretty counter opposite to what to what we did we do a lot of high volume and, and yeah quality work as well but um I think in very different sort of proportions to what the the Wollongong Wizards did so no I don't think he ever really told me what she was up to and I and I never really asked to be honest <laughs> and then the other one off that is that you were living with Vicky Holland who was the person that uh who beat you for by three seconds to to get that Olympic uh, bronze medal what was that like at the time where you know, you'd both been living and training together and, and for you, it ended up being such a disappointing day. And, and, and really it was your, it was your housemate and, and one of your best friends who, who sort of in a way led to that. Yeah, it would have been the dream scenario for, for both of us to get on the podium. Um, you know, that would have been, that, that would have been the absolute dream day. It happened at the test event where I was second and Vicky was third. And I think we'd have been delighted no matter what way it had finished at the Olympics, if we were both on the podium. And it was a strange um, experience at the finish because Vicky just kept apologizing. Um, I think she felt terrible that she'd won a medal and I'd missed out. And um, obviously I was delighted for her, but at the same time, really disappointed for me. And I think we were both just in this um, sort of massive conflict of emotions. And um, yeah, you know, we went home after Rio and, um, Vicky was obviously celebrating her 
her medal and I never wanted to detract from those celebrations because you know that's a what you know potentially once in a lifetime experience and it was really important to me that she enjoyed that period but I think then on the flip side she was really conscious of the fact that I was hurting and had missed out so yeah it was an interesting dynamic but you know we've come through it and we're still you know we're still great friends I was Vicky's bridesmaid last year she'll be my bridesmaid this year um yeah, we've uh, we've weathered it, and um, there was never a, a point where our friendship was questioned. You know, I've got a photo upstairs um, of me and Vicky at that Olympic finish line, and it says "friends first, always." Um, and Vicky gave gave that to me, and um, I think it's just sort of a, a testament to to how you know strong our relationship is away from triathlon, and and shows that it wasn't always just about about triathlon. That's so crazy. It's actually just hard to even like put yourself in that position and, and what it would have been like for both of you because like that's obviously it's probably harder for you. You don't have the Olympic medal to show for it, but Vicky would have felt so sort of like weird celebrating knowing that her best friend was three seconds behind her and sort of had had a, her dream sort of like, I don't know, destroyed is a strong word, but something similar to that by her. Like that's that's crazy. And you, you only get that in sport, don't you? Yeah, exactly. Um, that's the, the I guess, the, the special side of sport in the, and especially triathlon, you know, I've got so many great friends um, in triathlon and the British girls are genuinely all really good friends. I've, so they're some of them are my best friends. And yeah, when you get on that start line, you've almost got to put that aside and while we can be allies at points during the race, maybe on the bike um, or if you're in the swim, you know, you're very conscious of not uh, disrupting each other's um, progress or anything like that. But ultimately, when it gets on that run, you're you're fighting for the same positions and um, you kind of have to leave that friendship to the side. But as soon as you cross that line, um, you know, you're, you're back to being best friends. And, and it's something that me and Vicky always said in the build up to the Olympics that, um you know we we leave our friendship on you know on the start line and um as soon as we cross the line we're, we're best friends again but um yeah you know obviously you look out for each other in the race but uh yeah you just have to it's part of your job um and ultimately we're all racers and we all want to win so you kind of have to put it aside and then something else I was really curious about is is when I was talking to Aaron, um, your partner who who also went to these Olympics and I thought had a really good result, but he was also really disappointed in. Um, what were you guys like after that where you were both in, you know, shape to, to probably podium at the Olympic Games and, and you were dating each other and, and you were living across the other side of the world? What was it like for you guys at, at that time, you know, coming off those, um, what you both perceived as like really disappointing races that, that you've both never gone back and watched? Um, I don't remember us ever overly dwelling on it together. Um, I think I dealt with it a lot worse than Aaron. Aaron moved on a lot better than I did. Um, yeah, he's never watched. I think he, he might have actually done it now, but, um, you know, he didn't watch the race back for a long, long time. It might have only been very recently that he did. But yeah, he definitely dealt with it better than I did. But we straight after the Olympics, um, Aaron had to go and rejoin his squad because we still had world champs like two or three weeks later. Um, so Aaron went back and rejoined his squad and I came back to Leeds and I think we just kind of put our, he our heads down for the rest of the season and after Cosmo which was the grand final that year we that was finally the point where we were going to kind of merge our lives 
Uh, and I think we were just just relieved that we could finally be together and um, you know start actually living and spending time together. So we kind of focused on on that a bit more, and we came back to the UK for a bit, and then headed out to Australia because we were going to prep for Island House, which was a race uh, back back in those days. Um, and yeah, just try to enjoy traveling and, and being together, which I guess it probably helped both of us not dwell too, too long on the Olympics. But um, yeah, I probably took about two years to get over it, but I think he dealt with it a lot better than I did. Oh. <laughs> yeah, wild. And, and and the other question I have in relation to this is um, when I was talking to Aaron back on, on, on the episode with Aaron, he was, he said they were obsessed with with the bike ride at the Rio Olympics and and that hill particularly. So for people who haven't listened to this to that episode, A, I highly recommend you do. It was fascinating. But um, B, the the course at Rio was a it was a circuit where every every lap on the bike there was this really steep, hard hill. Um, and he he talked about how his group was obsessed with it and the hardest session he he's like he had ever done in his life was trying to replicate um, that bike course and, and that hill in particular leading into the, into the Olympics. Were you doing the same thing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I can guarantee the, the Brownies were also, that was their whole race tactic was to make that bike as hard as possible. And some of their sessions were uh, pretty crazy as well. But, um, as a group of girls, yeah, we were doing, we'd almost, found this perfect crit course in or created the perfect crit course in San Moritz where we were doing our altitude prep for the games. And um, it was almost like a flat build up um, with a few turns and then you'd hit like a really sharp hill. And um, yeah, we'd get somebody back then. It was Jess actually. Jess would have to attack us on that hill and we'd have to try and go with her. Um, and then you'd almost dead turn at the top and have quite a, you know, a pretty decent descent, which you had at the Olympics. The Olympic descent was pretty tricky, actually, um, with some sharp corners in it um, and then get straight back into like a through and off. Uh, and we did that for weeks and weeks on end. And I think that really uh, was a key part of our training. I think I think most people would have been really trying to prep for that hill because it was pretty nasty. <laughs> And what did the, just because you mentioned it, what were the Brownlee boys doing? Because um, I am fascinated on that because we got Aaron's insight into it, like on the other side of the world. What what were the boys doing? From memory, they were doing, so uh, Chain Gang is a pretty big part of the Leeds um, sort of training week. And it's where in Leeds, it's where anybody in the local sort of cycling community can turn up and you do basically a, hour of through and off along along the road so they took that idea out to San Moritz and from memory they were starting um that sort of hour of power kind of idea at the bottom of a pretty uh steep hill um and they would have to attack that really hard and then settle into a pretty decent tempo at the top of it and they just repeat that so um yeah i think that's from memory that's what they were doing so they're doing slightly different to us not sort of doing the more specific crit course but um yeah having to they'd have somebody lead out really really hard for five minutes and that was kind of their job done for the session but the boys had to try and stick with it and then go on and do another hour of hard riding yeah that was a crazy time in uh, triathlon wasn't it with those boys racing so well and and like great britain triathlon as a whole it was just um you guys were sort of like the, the the world standard at that at that time, hey? Yeah, definitely. You know, it's been amazing to be part of such a, a golden era of of triathlon, and um, 
you know, especially on the women's side, it's it's continued. You know, the, the British women are still dominating. Was it in Abu Dhabi last year? There was nine of us in the top 12, yeah. um, which is just insane, really. It's just it's just ridiculous. Um, and, you know, when you've got, I think 10 of us started that race, which when you've got, I think eight of us or nine of us, anyway, there was a, a ridiculous amount of us and, um, when you've got that many women who can even get on the World Series start line, um, you're just really lucky. Um, the biggest problem we have now is trying to get a start, uh, which is quite a um, unique situation to be in. And then, like, my next question is is after Rio, like, your career has been weird after Rio, I would have, th- I would have thought. Like, you were as close to the best triathlete in the, in the world at that time. And then again, like, another patch between sort of then and now where – you've had a lot of like injury and you know, you've, you've had like got sick a couple of times and you've had some like awesome races inside of it. How do you, how do you think of the next patch of your career? Um, the two years after Rio, um, I definitely was just sort of played with little niggles. Um, I really sort of chronic, uh, Achilles tendinopathy, um, and of various other things, but I really think, one of the major reasons why I struggled so much was because I where is that where I was at mentally. Um, I was I really struggled after Rio, and like I said, it took me about two years to really get over the world. Um, you know, I was probably pretty miserable to live with. Um, <clears throat> I yeah, I just really struggled, and because I was in such a negative mindset, getting over injuries was was really tough. Because you know, I think a large part of, you know, dealing with injuries and overcoming them is, is where you're at mentally. And if you're not positive about it, then they're going to drag on for, for longer than they need to. So I think those next two years were kind of really marred by, by that experience. And, you know, I, I regret it massively now. I wish I'd got more help and dealt with it a lot better, but I didn't, I just tried to sort of fumble on and, and never really, you know, I, talked a little bit about it to people but never really fully opened up and, and addressed the issue um, and I wish I'd done that straight away and you know I might not have lost two years of being pretty pretty average um, but it was also one of the main reasons why I decided to join Joel Filiol's uh, training group and leave Leeds um, I think I really needed to get get away from Leeds and and have a big change and um, yeah it really was a you know, a really big step in, in the healing process for me was sort of starting afresh. Um, and there was nothing wrong with Leeds, you know, it was still, still a great place to be. But for me personally, I, uh, almost needed to escape it all. Yeah. And, and, and like, did, did the, when you moved straight away, did things get better or was it still like a, uh, like a gradual, um, a gradual journey for, for things to sort of get back to where they are now? time I joined Joel end of 2018 um I was already sort of getting into a much better place so I was in a better place to be you know joining that group and um I think it just was the final sort of um part of the healing process almost um and yeah just having that fresh start and new faces and working with um a different coach was was really important for me and um you know, I had a great two years, two years with Joel and um, really enjoyed it and got a lot from it. And I think progressed a lot as an athlete. Um, 
but unfortunately uh, needed knee surgery at the end of 2019. So again, another bit of a, a blip in, um, in the journey. Um, but otherwise it'd been going really well with Joel up until that point. And it was just, unfortunately, actually, it was just a bit of a, a freak accident that, um, that led to me needing that surgery. And now my big question, which is something I really want to get into, is is what now and what next? So I decided at the end of last year, 2021, to um, move back to Leeds. Um, things had changed a lot with Joel's group. So Joel took the role as head coach of Triathlon Australia. So it was based more permanently out in Australia. And um, a lot of the girls in the group were, were moving on to other things as well, whether they were um starting families so two of the girls were starting families and uh one of the other girls decided that it was time for her to move on and um yeah things had just sort of started to change and there actually wasn't going to be that many training partners for me um especially if we were were over in Europe and you know I wouldn't ultimately be seeing Joel every day until sometime in 2022 so yeah I made the decision to to come back to Leeds um I've got my home here um, you know, I get all the support from British Triathlon while I'm based here, physio, medical, uh, and obviously they've still got a, a fantastic setup here. And uh, again, world-class athletes, you've got Georgia Taylor-Brown, Jess Learmont, Vicky Holland had just moved back. Um, and her husband, Reese Davey, actually um, had just been appointed as the head coach of, of Leeds Triathlon Centre. So, um, you know, he's obviously had a lot of success with Vicky and, um, yeah, it just felt like the, the right time to come back. And, um, I've loved being back training with, you know, some of my best friends and, and back sort of in, it's not my hometown because I didn't grow up here, but I've lived here since 2011. So, um, yeah, it's been a really positive experience and I'm really enjoying it. And, um, yeah, just looking forward to, to this season really. And we've got Commonwealth games and, um, you know, I'm really focusing on that and then, and then Super League probably. And is all your sort of energy still in short course or are you going to make the shift to long course and, and try and win Kona? Absolutely not. No way. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, my focus is completely short course. It's never really appealed to me, um, long course racing. I love the dynamic of short course. Um, you know, I like the the drafting um, sort of dynamics of, of bike racing um, and I think my mind would drift too much if I was on the bike on my own. That couples triathlon where I had to do 16K on my own was enough. Um, <laughs> and if there was anything to ever put me off doing long course was watching Clash Miami. Um, it looked like an absolute hell, hell, hellish day. Um, it was hot. Um, and I just thought the course was boring. <laughs> and I was watching everyone suffer out there. And a few people said to me, oh, don't you wish you were out there racing right now? And I thought, Absolutely not. I couldn't think of anything worse. So <laughs> that really cemented to me that I did not want to go long. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because like obviously you probably wouldn't be good at it if you were hating it and didn't want to do it. But like everything about you screams like I would be good at long course because you're so you are bloody tough and and like you have you you have a very well rounded game. I think so. That's sort of disappointing. I reckon even like you could yeah give yourself two years and you could you could be right at the top of that game. I reckon. Yeah, Aaron always, always says you have to try at least one. Um, and, you know, my physiology would lend itself perfectly to the, the longer stuff. Um, you know, I'm a bit of an engine. Um, I'm not the fastest 
um, you know, the sprints or, or anything like that. You know, I'm very good at threshold um, and sort of just being out there and suffering. But I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm just um, too indoctrined in, in world triathlon and short course racing. And I've just loved it so much. And um, it's hard to sort of sort of see past that. And I think what I like a lot as well about racing is doing it with my friends. And when I'm away at a World Series race or Super League, I'm with so many of my friends and the atmosphere with the British camp is just, um, it sounds really cheesy, but it's just, it's just great. We have so much fun together and um, some of my best memories are of traveling with the British team and, and spending time with those girls. And I think it'd be really weird to almost do it on your own because long course seems like a really sort of solo mission. Um, you have your own individual teams, but you don't necessarily have teammates. So yeah, I think I'd find that quite difficult. Do you think that Aaron can convince you to do at least one? Maybe we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but right, not no, not not right now. No, um, my arms are sore after time trialing. I felt like I'd had um, like uh, vaccinations in my arms the next day from uh, being <laughs> for sixteen k. Not even not even that long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's because you never do it. Um, I think Anne Hag only won like the, the world champs when she was like 36 or 37, didn't she? And you're, you would only be what, like 32, 33 at the moment? Yeah, I'm 33 now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I used to race against uh, Annie Haug. Um, she, she was one of the, you know, main contenders for that title in, in 2013, but ultimately had a really bit bad swim in London and, um, yeah, made my life a bit easier. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, no, she's gone on to be to be phenomenal. To be fair to her, and um, yeah, she's she's a few years older, so and she doesn't look like she's slowing down anytime soon. I was really hoping that I was going to come on today, and you were going to tell me that you were going to make the shift to long course, and I was going to be really excited about it, and I was going to tell people, yeah, she'll win this in a few years. But now I've just now I'm leaving disappointed. Oh, I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> a few people have asked me the question, and I think yeah, I've always kind of. Uh, shot it down but um yeah we'll we'll see but um I think my heart will always be be in short course ultimately and and then my last big question is how is your training different now to that patch we talked about in 2012 2013 when you were training um you know when you were fresh faced and and had just come out of the, the under 23s and were you know winning every race you were starting basically or at least at least getting close um how's it changed to, to right now what are the what are the big differences the main difference is the volume of running that I'm doing. Um, I just can't tolerate, um, you know, all those loads. So I run uh, five or six times a week uh, now, but one of those is on the levers running system, which is um, almost like an alter G, but it can be put on any treadmill and it's like a bungee system that offloads some of your weight. So you can um, yeah, run offloaded and, and hopefully potentially, um avoid some sort of injuries um you know bone and and tendon injuries by reducing the load so i do that every wednesday um and then run only run 30 minutes on a monday and then a session tuesday and saturday uh and a 45 minute run on a sunday so my yeah my my volume is massively reduced on the run um i'm still cycling a decent amount um probably not too much less than I used to probably quite similar uh but I think overall I'm far more aware of my body um I understand the sport a lot more and and I think as you get older 
um, you know, you have to adapt. You can't continue to do the same training that you did when you were in your early 20s. You have to be respectful that, um, yeah, your body's changed and you've done a lot of the, you know, you've done a lot of the work and, and that's in the bank and experience starts to, to play a big role as well. So, yeah, I think some things are, some things are the same. Uh, I'm actually doing a lot more swim volume as well now. We've got a, um Olympic swim coach who's come over into into the British Rathbun program in the last uh, 12 to 18 months and sort of making a huge impact on on the swim of all the swim uh, of all the athletes up here in, in in Leeds. So swimming more, running less and riding about the same. <laughs> and is the big goal still an Olympic gold medal? Does that still drive you? Um I don't I, I don't know if I'll still be going um by Paris. I'm just sort of taking each year as it comes and um reassessing at the end of the year how my body is and how my mind is. And right now I'm just fully focused on, on going to the Commonwealths and do you know that would be another dream come true if I could stand on the podium with a medal for Wales. Um, you know, I'm very patriotic and a very proud. Uh, Welsh woman and we never get the chance to to represent Wales and race for Wales so the Commonwealth Games is that only opportunity and um, it would be yeah like I say another dream come true if I could could win a medal for Wales at, at this year's Commonwealth Games. And then sorry one more question this is my last question um, triathlon like living as a triathlete it's like a very all-consuming lifestyle where you you do so much volume that um, you really can't like have a life outside of it too much. But, um, and I know a lot of people listening to this will, will be doing it and, and have a partner who sort of maybe sort of understands, doesn't really understand. Is it like a little annoyed that their, their partner's off riding for six hours every Saturday morning? Do you think life is better as a triathlete with a triathlete partner? Or do you think it would be better if your partner didn't do triathlon? There's arguments to both sides of the story. Um, definitely. But, um, I personally think it's so much easier having a partner that does it because a you have that common interest and you can both go out and do some training together. Um, you know, we're very lucky that me and Aaron can go out for a long ride together or out running together. Yeah, we can't do you know all our quality sessions together because he's obviously a lot quicker than I am. But yeah, we have that that common sort of shared interest and and we understand what each other has to do and. You know, in this instance, this year, we're going to have to spend quite a lot of time apart because Aaron's still coached by Joel, so still training with that squad. And I'm back here in Leeds. And, um, you know, we're able to do that because we understand what each other needs. And um, that isn't necessarily, you know, what, you know, we don't doesn't mean that we can be together all the time. And that would be very difficult if if we weren't both in the, you know, in the same industry and in the same sport. But I guess it would probably be nice to come home and... Um, also be able to completely switch off from triathlon because your partner doesn't necessarily understand it or enjoy it or want to talk about it. So, um, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's arguments to both sides. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Hey, Non, thanks so much for the chat today. That was, uh, that was fascinating. And, and I've always wanted to have that chat and, and hear a bit of insight about you because like, I'm, I'm sure you can tell, I've always been a massive fan and, and, you know, at times thought you were the, the best triathlete in the world. So yeah, real honor and, and, and loved having you on. That's really kind. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been really cool to chat. So thank you. Awesome. Have a good day, Nom. Thank you. Or, you or too. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>